How are you guys doing today? Good? Yeah, there it is. Well, as Pastor Eric said, my name is Jeremy. I think I know a lot of you here today, but uh, I'm so excited to be up here. I don't know if you guys know how special today is. Did you know it's a special day? Yeah? Josh does. All right, cool. Today is such an awesome day. What I love about this time of year is we have new beginnings starting in just a couple of days, right? In a couple of days is going to be 2019. Now, how many of you guys remember 2010 or the year 2000 and you looked and said, man, in 2020, it's going to be crazy. Did that happen? Anybody else? No, just me. All right, cool. Well, I love new beginnings and today is an awesome Sunday because we get to reflect back and look on what 2019 has been. And also, we get to make a decision today that what we're going to do in 2020 can be some incredible things. So um, I love new beginnings, and that's why I'm so excited about it. Um, A little bit about me. I had the good fortune of growing up in a family that put their faith as the number one priority in their life. Um, I am so thankful that I had parents who loved God and who dragged me to church every single Sunday, even when I didn't want to go. And I was the little two-year-old who used to run around the church and cause all kinds of problems. And now I'm the 39-year-old who runs around the church and causes all kinds of problems. But uh, some things don't change. But I've heard so many messages um, about the Bible and about stories about who God is and um, You know, the one we're going to talk about today is one of my absolute favorites, so I'm really excited. Um, Before we get there, though, uh, let me just ask you guys a question. How many of you have ever heard the phrase worldview? How many of you guys have ever heard the phrase, like, what's your worldview, or how do you see the world? When I was growing up, the churches I was a part of was very, very, talked about that all the time. That was something that was very common for the pastor to talk about. And, you know, I'm really grateful for that because, because they did that, it helped me to be able to understand a little bit more about why I do the things that I do. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but the way we see the world really influences everything that we do in life. Um, it taught me to be conscious of why I do things. And how we see the world affects almost every area of our life. It plays a role in how happy we are, how generous we are, how much fun life is. Josh has a lot of fun in life. When we understand how we see the world, we can uncover a lot about why we do the things that we do. We can change, we can grow, we can experience more positive things in life because we better, better understand why. A few years ago, I read a book by Simon Sinek. I don't know if you know who that is, but He wrote a book called It Starts With Why, and I absolutely love that book. It's a great book on the importance of why we do things, not just how we do them. Let's be honest, the world looks different depending on our life's experiences. What family we grew up in, the amount of money we had or not. There are so many things that influence the way we see the world that... um, And we all have a unique collection of those experiences as well, which means we all have a unique way that we are seeing the world. But today, I want to talk about how God sees the world. Now, would you agree that that's probably kind of important for us to know how God sees the world? It's a big topic, but I got a little shortcut or a cheat code. Don't worry, it's not some weird thing that I made up. It's looking at what Jesus said. So, If anyone can tell us how God sees the world, it's Jesus. It's really only Jesus who can actually do that. Today, we're going to be looking at Luke 14 and 15, but the one story at the end is the one that I really want to hit on. Even if you don't have a church background, the story we're going to talk about today, I guarantee you, you've heard it. 
But let me set the table for the story before we get there. If you don't know uh, who Luke is, Luke was a follower of Jesus. Early on, he was uh, traveled around with Paul the Apostle. He was a friend of Paul the Apostle. And he went around and he collected stories from firsthand eyewitnesses, people who had walked with Jesus, who had seen what happened when Jesus was on this earth. And he put all those stories together in one collection. And he did this because he told, uh, there's a gentleman named Theophilus. I have no idea who he is. But he was a dis- another disciple of Christ. And uh, Paul said, uh, I'm sorry, Luke says in the first few verses, he says, the reason I'm putting together this orderly account of the life of Jesus is because I want you to be certain of the things that you've been taught. So lots of stories were circulating about the life of Christ from people who had seen it firsthand. And there was a lot of teaching going on from people who never met Jesus. I'm sorry, two people who had never met Jesus. And so what Luke is doing, he's putting together all these stories so that this, uh, this guy Theophilus can know that what he was taught about Christ was real. And that's why he was doing this investigation. Well, if we fast forward to chapter 14, we find that Luke is telling a story of one specific day. And it starts with one Sabbath when he, when he, being Jesus, went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. They are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were constantly trying to trap Jesus, trying to convince people that what Jesus uh, was doing and teaching was wrong because he was threatening their power structure. And so they were always trying to, to uh, trap him, to get him to look like a fraud so that they could discount him and cast him aside. And so it's at this dinner party that this is happening. And the the verse says, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. So Jesus took the man and healed him and sent him away. Then Jesus asked him a question. Now, this is one of those rhetorical questions. You guys know these, right? Dads love to ask teenagers rhetorical questions. I did it last night. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if one of you had a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? They had nothing to say. I love that. It's kind of that gotcha moment. Like, I'm going to show you exactly how you would do this very same thing. But now because I did it for someone else, you're upset. Jesus points out to the people who get upset when the traditions, traditions are broken to help someone else that they would do it themselves if they valued that person enough. Then Jesus notices that the guests were picking their seats by choosing the seats of honor at the table. Remember, this is all taking place at a dinner party. Jesus was invited to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So he notices that the important people are taking seats in the seats of honor at this table. So Jesus tells them, don't select the seat of honor. If you do, someone more important may come along, and then you'll be asked to move. That would be embarrassing. Rather, choose the seat of least importance, and then when your host sees you, they will ask you to move to the seat of more importance in front of everyone present. Then Jesus drops the bomb on them. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So Jesus does what Jesus always seemed to do, and he turned his attention to the man who invited him, and he tells him not to invite people who who we often think are important. He highlights and says, don't just invite your family or rich people to the party, but invite those who are overlooked, and he says the blind, the lame, 
the crippled. And then he tells another story about why. If you look closely, we can see that Jesus is taking the circumstances of this dinner to highlight how we as humans often act, and then he gives us a different way. He shows us the way of God's kingdom. He shows us that the way God acts is different than the way that we do, that God sees the world different than we do, and in light of that, he acts different. As we read on, we see in verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him, and Jesus turned to the crowds and began to teach them. Crowds always followed Jesus around everywhere that he went, big crowds. I can picture the crowds that followed him to this dinner. They're looking in windows. They're pushing their way through doorways. They're just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus and hear what he has to say. These were the people that Jesus was talking about to the host of the parties. The, uh, the party. The host had invited all the important people, but these sinners, as they were called, were the people who followed Jesus everywhere. And the, the story continues. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is where Jesus tells three stories. The last one is the main one we're going to focus on, but we need to go through these first. He talks about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. And if, the one, if one of those sheep wandered away, would he not go after the one and leave the 99? And when he finds it, doesn't he rejoice and celebrate because the one is found? This has really profound meaning. You have to remember, if a shepherd left 99 sheep, no one was guarding him. Wolves could have come in and destroyed them all. But the shepherd here has such love for the one that he's willing to chase it when it wanders away even at the risk of the others. Jesus is highlighting God's great love for us. Then Jesus tells a story of a woman who had 10 coins, but, he, but she lost one. And he says, would she not light a lamp and search for it? And would she not rejoice when she finds it? The thing I find really interesting here is both of these are commodities. Sheep, coins, it's, it's money. It's things that people find a lot of value in. They represent comfort and security, just like all wealth does. Jesus is making the point here that when it comes to our comfort and our wealth, if we lose some and we find it again, we rejoice and celebrate. It's something of meaning. That as humans, those are things we greatly value and we would risk a lot to recover them if we lost them. Jesus is not only telling a story here, he's revealing some of the human condition. So now, we're getting, now we get to the story that we're going to read. It's going to be up here on the screen. It's the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son, it's called sometimes. And Jesus is now countering these two stories of how we as humans act, and, and he's highlighting and giving us a glimpse of what God values. So let's read the story. Luke 15, 11 says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So he gave his inheritance to his two kids. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he, he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So the son started off by saying his spiel, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted him and said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. The servant says, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother be, became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been a slave for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father replied, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This story just blows me away every time I read it. The father here clearly represents God and the two sons, neither of them are perfect. Those, two son, those sons are us. As we read the Bible and learn about God and the story of humanity, we see that from the beginning, we humans have taken what God gave us and tried to make our own rules in our own way. I've been listening to a podcast lately called The Bible Project, and they like to say it like, they like to summarize all of human history in the Bible like this. God created all things, gave us the opportunity to rule, but instead of adopting right and wrong according to God, we feel the need to redefine right and wrong by our own standards. That's what sin is and what causes our separation from God. It causes our need for a savior. That the whole Bible is a story of humankind rejecting what God tells us, trying to make it on our own. The story of the prodigal son is all about that. A son rejecting the father and taking what he believed was his right. In this case, it was his inheritance and going to do life on his own terms. And just like all of us would at some point, he messes things up so badly and he ends up sleeping with pigs. I've never slept with pigs, but I don't want to. In this culture, there was no animal lower than a pig. For Jesus to say sleeping with pigs is kind of like if a parent said, well, I had to go down to a drug den and find my son who was totally strung out. It's the lowest of the low places to be. Or, if you're an SNL fan, living in a van down by the river. A couple people got that. This was a very definition to them of broken, lost, and hurting. 
This son wasted his entire inheritance, half of his father's wealth, trying to prove he knew better than his father, trying to live life for nothing more than pleasure or self-satisfaction, not thinking of anybody else. This parable to me is the struggle for all of us. We want to define how we do things, don't we? We don't want anyone else telling us what to do, what we can and can't do. Don't judge me. You don't know where I've been, what I've been through. But before we get lost in all of this, let's, talk, let's pull back and let's look at how God sees this story. How he views the prodigal. When the son took his inheritance, he was saying to the father, you don't matter to me, only your money does. He gave his father the greatest insult you can possibly imagine. You mean nothing to me. Inheritance doesn't pass until you're dead, so you might as well be dead to me. I want my money. I can do what I want, and I don't have to listen to anybody else. And it's in the midst of this that we realize the worldview of the father. The father in this story didn't value his possessions or his traditions. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. God doesn't care what car we drive or what house we live in. He doesn't care about what country we're from, what race we are. What the father values in this story is his child, even the rebellious one, the one who brought shame on him, even that son, the one who insulted him, cast him aside, and wasted what the father had given him. Jesus is showing us right here how God sees the world. He shows us that God doesn't care about the things that we tend to value in life, like our image, our wealth, our comfort. Jesus is showing us he sees us different from any label other than child of mine. In the story, it says, Jesus said the father ran to the son. This was scandalous. Fathers didn't run to their kids. Important people didn't run to anybody. Important people didn't even go to anybody. At this time, and it's a sign of importance was that everyone came to you. But when the father saw the son, his love for him was so great that he ran. He abandoned the traditions and the honors of that time. The father rejoiced when the lost son returned, in spite of the insults and injury the son had committed. Even the son realized his sin, right? I mean, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. Let me be a servant in your house that I don't have to die. But the father had other plans. Can you see God's worldview in the midst of this story? That's why at Mosaic, we like to say it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. You are loved by God and by us because God loved us the same. You cannot experience this type of love without being compelled to give that same love to others. When you truly feel and experience this type of unconditional love, you cannot help but be moved to the point of changing your life. And this is why we as a church exist, because God loved us so much that he sent his son to die a terrible death. Did you know that Paul said that Jesus left the wealth of heaven to come to earth and take on filthy rags, which is humanity, in order to pay the price that none of us could for our rebellion and rejection of God and his ways. Because we rejected God's def definition of right and wrong and redefined it for ourselves. we need a savior to redeem us. And we've all done this. 
God sent Jesus to reunite us with him and to provide us the opportunity to turn from seeing the world the way that we do and instead adopt God's view of things. I think the reason this story is my favorite is because I've been given so many second chances in my life, and that's a really nice way of saying I have made so many mistakes. Right? You don't need a second chance unless you screw something up. I've been so fortunate to have friends and family This church loved me through all of my issues. And because of that, I'm compelled to give that to other people. The beauty of all this is that because God loved us all the way to the cross, we get to love others all the way back to a relationship with Jesus. And that's what Christianity is. It's not about attending Sunday services or doing any ritual because our families had a tradition or it's what we do. It's about loving others so much because God loved us so much that we can't help but put other people ahead of ourselves. And it's not just at home that we put other people ahead of ourselves either. Jesus made it very clear that to truly know God means to serve not only your loved ones, but everyone, even our enemies. You see, This is one of the things that Jesus was always talking about. He was always talking about the kingdom of heaven. And that's God's worldview. He doesn't see the world the way we do. He doesn't see people the way we do. When he sees anyone, what he sees is his son. His vision for us is so much bigger than we can even imagine. We dream of making enough money to live our lives in comfort and be able to ensure our loved ones never suffer All the while, God sees things so different. And he does things so different as a result. He values people over anything, including his own life. Jesus tells the story of a father and a son for a reason. Because there's no love that we can true, we can't truly understand how God loves us, the extent of it. But the closest we can get is the love that we have for a child. There is no love like God's love for us, but if we ask God to help us grow, to see people the way that he does, we can experience more of that. It's not something that happens overnight. It's a process, but it begins by asking God to help you see others the way that he does. And this is why Mosaic Church exists. We like to say that we exist to help other people love God, serve others, and make disciples. You don't have to be here very long for someone to stand up here and say that. And pretty much every message, if you listen closely, that's pointing us all to that. At one point while he was on earth, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command that God gave? And his response was, love the Lord your God with everything you have and everything you are. But he didn't stop. He said, the second is just like it. He put it on the same level. And he said, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. So naturally, they said, well, who's our neighbor? Is it the guy who lives next door? Because that I can do. Jesus told them a story of a guy who helped out someone who he despised. He told the story of uh, a guy who found someone on the side of the road who was a Samaritan. And in this time, they, Jews hated Samaritans and vice versa. And he said, even that is your neighbor. And what he's saying is, Everybody, there's no exceptions. Again, it goes back to all people. 
Because we see the world through the eyes of our own survival and comfort and wealth, Jesus challenges us to then engage even with our enemies and love them the same way we love ourselves. Pretty radical if you ask me. There's a lot of reasons why Jesus was crucified, and it was because he was constantly telling people to live their life different. And this is why we say, um, and this is why we say we exist to help people love God and serve others. Because Jesus was asked what's most important, and that was his answer. Then right before Jesus left this earth, he gave his disciples one final command, and it was to go into all the world to make disciples of everybody. It's not a coincidence that these are the three things that make up why Mosaic Church exists. To love God means to follow him, to act like him. It's not just an emotional love that's affection. It's a deep-rooted love that only comes when we understand how he sees us, and more importantly, how he sees everyone around us. Understanding this love comes also as we serve others. Yep, serving others is going to be a natural outpouring of this relationship with God. But it also means that we understand more of what that love is as we serve other people. I really encourage you to take any opportunity you have to serve others. I believe it should be in every area of our life that we're doing it. In every action that we do, we're doing it in service to someone else. On Sunday mornings, we can serve people in our community. We get the distinct privilege of providing a place for people who don't know God to come in and meet him. And we get to create a space for people who do know him to come in and encounter him again. I know we all have our own reasons for coming to church, but I would like us to pin that one right at the top. Because what it says is it says other people are more important than me, and it seems to me that that fits with this story. We can come on Sunday and help provide a space for the lost to be found. And in order to see the world the way God does, that's how we have to act. At Mosaic, we do community service projects on a pretty regular basis. I would really encourage you guys to be involved with that. Whenever we have one, try and come out and serve the community. Maybe you even, it's pretty crazy, but maybe you even gather some people and some friends and do it without it being a church project that would be crazy. Maybe God's even calling you to help organize more church-wide service projects so that we can continue to go more and more into our community and spread the love of Christ. Making disciples means investing in the lives of others and helping people know God. As a church, we do small groups. That's our primary function for that. Maybe your next step is getting involved in a small group. Maybe it's starting a small group and investing in the lives of others. Maybe it's volunteering with the kids and making more disciples. Listen, kids matter. Most people at our church have kids, and you care about your kids. Well, God cares about all the kids, as should we. And helping them see who God is and helping them know who he is from the very beginning is the greatest gift you will ever give a child. My parents raised me in a home where I've known God my entire life. I've never told my parents this, but when I was a teenager, I was into some stupid stuff, and I remember doing something pretty bad in a garage with some friends, just think that 70s show, and I was sitting here doing this, and I remember talking to God while doing it, 
And I remember saying, you know, God, I know someday I got to stop doing all this stuff and all this nonsense. And I just remember not feeling any guilt or shame. I knew it was wrong. Don't get me wrong. I knew it was wrong. I knew that I was wasting my time and my life with that. But I remember how I felt God, God's presence in the middle of that. If I hadn't grown up in the family I did, I would have never experienced that. There are lots of ways that you can join with us at Mosaic. Anyone who gives to Mosaic or serves at Mosaic is investing in the lives of every person who's touched here. Remember, Mosaic, isn't, Mosaic Church is not an organization. You are. You're Mosaic. You are the mosaic that makes up our church community. If all the people here leave, guess what? Mosaic Church doesn't exist. Each of us has gifts and talents, and each of us who are followers of Jesus are called to use those talents to help more and more lost people find him, to help more and more found people be discipled. As Jesus tells us in this parable, heaven rejoices when the lost are found. The Father cares so much about people that he runs to them in spite of what they've done. This is the story of the Bible. God's love for people is so great that he's willing to sacrifice anything to see all people be found. And we get to share in that story. We get to take what God has given us and give it to others. We get to change our worldview from whatever it is now and adopt God's view on life and his view of people. His worldview is clearly that he values all people over anything that this life has to offer. Some of us are blessed with a lot of possessions in this life or maybe a lot of talents. How we spend them shows how we see the world. The band can come up. I have two points today, and I want to leave them with us now. As I read the story, I can't help but see so clearly what it's trying to tell us. God's world view of this world revolves around people. His love for you is greater than you can ever imagine, and he paid the price for all of us. If we'll simply follow him, we'll find true life. And the second point is, you can change the way you see the world. You can choose to see the, way, see the world the way God does. If you're a follower of him, we're even commanded to do so. When God looks at this earth, he sees his children. And that's what matters to him. We're about to enter into a time of 21 days of prayer and fasting coming up in a couple weeks and like I said in the beginning it's a new year it means what's in the past is in the past and it doesn't matter anymore but what we all have now is an opportunity to stand up and we have an opportunity to make 2020 count we have an opportunity to spend the next period of time asking God to help us see the world the way that he does it's not easy to do that, and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. But the first step is most definitely asking him. It's most definitely recognizing that how God sees this world and this life is bigger than anything we can even imagine. 
But if we ask him to help us to see it that way and live our life that way, man, we can change this world. We can change our community. And it starts with one person. It starts one person at a time. Let's pray. Father, today we've looked at the story of the prodigal son and and seen how your love for people is so great and so amazing. I just ask God that um, as we leave here and we get ready to start a new year, that, that every thought that we have, that every action that we take, God, that it would be used to serve your kingdom, that there's nothing greater than seeing the world through your eyes, and there's nothing greater than having the privilege of serving and helping other people. And God, I just ask that as we leave here today, that this wouldn't just be something that we heard and then forgot, but God, that we would take what you spoke to our hearts today and that you would help us to put it into practice in our life. That we can serve the people around us, no matter who they are. That we don't judge others, that we don't look down on others wherever they're at. But that when we see them, Father, we see them the way that you do as a parent sees their child. God, I just ask that you would help us all with this big idea and that it would forever change every one of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.